There's a gazelle bounding through my hallway. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed Episode 268 is recorded live January 7th, 2016. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. In the beginning of the new year, 2016, joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. And it, it feels like it's been a while. It's unusual for us to have two Thursdays that were holidays, but I couldn't see any other way of doing the episode on Thursdays that would make sense and not get me in too much trouble. So we had two weeks off. Thanks for everybody for tuning back in and listening to us again. And did you have a good holiday? I always have a good holiday. And Santa was good. Santa was good. Well, that's good. The, the scuba gear, I hope? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that That's always better. It's never a problem. You know, what do you want? It's like, well... I'll take an air card, a goodie bag. I need a new pair of gloves. You know, for all the budgets you can imagine, you can find something for them to purchase. Oh, there's plenty. And maybe we'll have to update that for for next year's for the holidays. We'll we'll put together our our recommended diving wish list. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. First article we have up is a follow up. If you remember a little while ago, there was a 125-year-old bottle of beer that was found. This was in Nova Scotia, Halifax. A scuba diver and researcher and beer enthusiast has walked in lab and uncorked the mystery of an antique bottle of beer. John Krause, an amateur scuba diver and treasure hunter from Nova Scotia, found the beer bottle at the bottom of Halifax Harbor in November. He kept the bottle wondering what was inside and if it was drinkable. The bottle seemed to be well-sealed and had a cork inscribed with a. Keith and Son Brewery. On Wednesday, the mysterious murky liquid was identified. Krause enlisted the help of Christopher Reynolds, co-owner of Stillwater Beer Bar in Halifax, and Andrew McIntosh of uh, Dahl House, I'm probably not sounding that right, University specialized in fermentation research. The team tested the bottle to make sure it was beer inside, not seawater, before daring to take a swig. Uh, Reynolds said it tasted surprisingly good and surprisingly like beer. And this he told to the CNN affiliate CTV. McIntosh felt differently. He tried the beer for the sake of science. I wouldn't want to drink any of it, he said. <laughs> Which is kind of what we speculated. I, I thought he wasn't going to drink it. Originally, he was just going to stick it in the back of a toilet and let it let the salt come out of the come out of it. I thought. I thought it was very interesting though that he found a a beer bar owner yeah. and an individual specializing in information of liquids yeah and more so that they went ahead and tested it for them yeah now i wonder what kind of uh pr they got sounds almost a little bit like a uh promotion stunt which is fine i'm not sure but i can say reynolds being a beer connoisseur you know when he said tastes surprisingly good Uh uh-huh like beer i can see him saying that whereas the other individual working on fermentation so, you know, you wouldn't want to drink any of it. Well, there's some <laughs> skunky beer out there I wouldn't want either. Yeah. <laughs> so. 
it, you know, maybe it's just a taste. They said it did taste like beer, so it's it's a unique thing to be able to drink a uh, hundred and year plus of anything. You're right. That would have been like the bottle we found wasn't a hundred years old, <laughs> and you did not want to drink that. That that I was saying was probably more like three to four. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. The next one is a seven million dollar prize for developing ocean explorer global competition is challenging teams to design an underwater vehicle explore the deep sea it must be able to map the sea floor, produce images of specific objects identify archaeology biological and geological features and for a bonus track a chemical or biological signal to its source teams must launch from shore or the air and have limited time to explore the competition area they must meet it must have minimum human intervention Shell Ocean Discovery X Prize will take place in two rounds over 36 months. Teams must register by the deadline in order to complete. Each team will submit technical documentation two months after the registration deadline detailing the approach and technologies. The technical documentation will be judged, and the top 25 teams will be invited to participate in round one of testing. And they go on to explain it. That seems like a bargain, don't you think so? If if I'm Shell and I can get people to come up with technology that I can use in my project, it's certainly worth $7 million. Well, grand prize of $4 million, second prize of a million. And looking at um, the different items they're looking for, it was quite interesting and quite novel. But the people who are doing this are not like you and me. So it's not some guy in his backyard putting together a couple uh, gallon jugs and tying an engine to them. Well, it, it doesn't uh, talk about what the uh, criteria is for being a participant, or is there an entry fee? Mm-hmm. So it'd be interesting to know that. But top 25 teams, it sounds like they expect to have quite a few people. And I would imagine the side scan people, bottom uh, profilers, the new 3D stuff. Yeah. I think they're going to have some interesting people put in for that. Well, we'll look at, for round one of testing, it's going to be conducted at 2,000 meters depth. That's insanely deep, 2,000 well, meters. It's not. It's only, what, 6,000 feet. Wow. More th- deeper than I would want to go. Well, it's a workable depth if you're trying to salvage something with the technologies up today because they've done that already. Yeah. And considering it ain't 36,000 feet, which would really be a long way down. Right, right. So I can see this. Right now I'm looking at the military applications, the uh, – uh, oil aspects, materials that you can mm-hmm. find on the bottom. And yeah. you'd want something at a depth that you can re- reasonably work at and get your money back. Yeah. So uh, Noah's kicking in a bonus prize of $1 million to be awarded to round one to the team that successfully identifies a source of an established biological or chemical signature. I would think they're talking about like the hot vents again when you have a combination of both of those. It says biological chemical signature. So they've got to be injecting. Like I'm, I'm going to think that they're going to have some sort of bacteria or uh, algae bloom. That like they're, I said, yeah, the, the vents. Remember how they, yeah. vents have all of those criteria? Yeah, I guess that, that could be. So there, there's, there's a lot of programs that are already going on, and I guess they would just have to kind of focus their development to meet the requirements. Yeah. I'd like to hear the results at the end of this uh, item and take a look at some of the papers, which I'm sure will have photographs and, you know, resulting pictures, diagrams or otherwise. 
Yeah, did they say when the when the deadline is again? I thought it was uh, over a period of five years, isn't it? Yeah, it said because uh, you, you have to do an advance, then the two rounds over 36 months. Teams have over three years to develop the robot. So you got three years to develop, then you have the first round of testing, and then 36 months for the second round of testing. Wow, that's quite a while. Well, yeah, and you figure the technology makes leaps and bounds in photography every every couple of years, it appears. So it's going to be interesting. I'd love to see the results. Yeah. Well, I expect we're going to be able to hear about it. And then California Diver Magazine has an article talking about improving scuba training through exercise. They yeah, said they, they, they just just before you, you posted, mm-hmm. and uh, it's sort of scary what they're saying at the bottom, though. It says there's, uh, they said scuba diving instruction has changed dramatically from the early days of diving. Dive gearing technology has certainly changed along with it. Methods of training and education have been refined, making both teaching and learning new concepts easier and more efficient. They said the physical component of learning to dive has changed dramatically. Dive courses in the 60s, for example, had very strong exercise component resembling military training. Uh, we don't need to do 100 push-ups in full gear, swim for miles, tread water 20 pounds of weight, turn our certification today. And then they said you move forward to 2015, you find that basic stu- scuba certification courses today are far different from those of earlier days. We're no longer treading water with bricks held over our heads. And new technologies such as e-learning, we've changed the academic portion of how training is taught. They said, well, many disagree. The e-learning and referral options are logical evolutions of training that fit in a faster-paced lifestyles. They said there is a third component of training that is necessary to create a skilled, confident diver pool or combined water training. It's an area where the quality training is equally as important now as it was in the early days, an area of training that has been seriously compromised in recent years. So they said after completing e-learning, many dive shops across the country are now offering new scuba divers the option to complete their pool training in a single day. That sounds easy and efficient for both the student instructor then they said it's certainly a great marketing proposition, but th- these are divers becoming safe, confident divers who are truly prepared for a lifetime of diving, unsupervised in open water, and they said, of course not. And then they go in and they talk about just how uh, repetition uh, helps build muscle memory, which is what I agree. You can't learn any skill, even video games. Uh, they find out that people do better if they do it for a while, sleep on it. There's something that happens when you when you sleep that the next day doing the task. So say if you do an hour Monday and then you do an hour Tuesday, you're better off than if you did three hours on Monday. There's something about the, you know, whether your mind thinks over it, if your muscles program, whatever happens that helps when you're losing these, losing learning these type of skills. Well, what surprised me though, and I didn't see a reference to the open water portion of the training for qualification. That's what bothered me. Pool is not the same as an, the real life, you know, the river or the pond or the lake or the ocean. Have they taken the open water requirement out? Did you see a reference to it? Uh, they didn't even say who they really were talking about. And that's what that's what piqued my curiosity to begin with. Yeah, because yeah, you got your pool courses, which when I did mine, it was two days, but barely two days. But then open water was really, I guess you could have done it in one day, but it was, it was spread over two days. For us, so we had at least four days of training in the water, which really wasn't enough. It'd be nice to have more. It, it's probably okay if the people did not go out and try to make a hundred foot dive on their third open water dive by themselves, like we read about last time. 
Right. And that you've got a confident or a, a competent uh, buddy who you're diving with. The, the thing is, is that a, a new diver has a hard time keep taking care of themselves, let alone another diver. Well, yeah, I was, you've got quite a few items today. I was going to bring up a little item that I was talk. I was been reading about during the week. It's called worst case scenarios for scuba divers. Yes. And I mean, they're not all bad, bad, just going to kill you, but two of them came to mind. I was going to talk about at any stage of the game, but especially as a newbie, a stuck auto inflate valve. If you're doing a boat dive with no downline and you have a stuck auto inflate at the start, not a big deal. But if you're halfway down or on the bottom and you have that, what's your comfort level and survival going to be? And the second one was you did a boat dive, you got off the boat, and your inflator doesn't work. And you don't know, or, you know, we normally would trim ourselves so we're just floating at the surface without it. But if the BC didn't inflate and you're not on a line, you're going down, and the further you go down, the faster you're going. Yeah. Uh, yeah, whereas, you know, the training you got did not include that, I'm willing to bet you. Yeah. Well, w- one thing is that uh, in that particular situation, uh, that you should have had air in bef- in your BC before you went in the water. Uh, and that would be the answer to that. But it's possible that they, you know, if you didn't, that would certainly be a, a scary experience. And like you, I think we talked about this just a few weeks ago, is it's r- rare for people to drop their weights. They just, there's something... Uh, adverse about doing it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I came up through the old school. Uh, my first instructor was a Navy diver and he taught us the way the Navy divers did. Kick. We, we didn't have to do a hundred push-ups, but that 20 pound brick, the, the hand strapped behind your back, you know, staying up for 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. We had all that. Yeah. Well, plus sometimes you don't know what you can do until you're asked to do it. And it's much better to learn in a pool or controlled supervised environment than to figure out on your own. Well, yeah, that's like the bump mask and you knock the mask off in a pool. Ain't the same thing when you're in low-vis water and you're cold. Uh, the other, on the other side of that, and I think that's the reason why they, they did away with it, is they were scaring away potential divers who could become good scuba divers. There are some people who are just afraid of the the rigid discipline in the intensity of the training, uh, and later if they were if they were eased into it, uh, could actually be proficient and confident divers. And I'm, I'm sure there could. I know there's a part of it. I won't say macho part, but when you finished it in the old days and you met another diver, you were very comfortable with that diver generally because they went through the same thing you did. Yeah, you, you had confidence in that. And and uh, you know, as I've talked to some instructors, it's almost like they've broken the training up into multiple different stages so that the the cost of doing the training doesn't doesn't scare people away maybe even more than the case of uh, people being concerned about the the intensity of the training because if you think about it really what you should have is basic open water advanced open water and maybe even rescue and if you do f- enough for those three that's really probably what you had in the old days, is uh, you know, as far as your crash courses, that's probably correct. I knew, I do know that they were very emphatic when I took it to make sure you knew that Great Lakes diving was not like diving in the oceans. 
because you have a lot of different scenarios of totally different surf entries. We don't have that. No. And they were emphatic about you need to get additional training for the different conditions you're going to be diving on. Yes. And, and they did cover that, at least in the in the print of the book, is that whenever you, you go to a new environment, you need to maybe even get some additional training while you're down there. This next article is Sunken Treasures at the Paris Canal. Not quite scuba diving, <coughs> excuse me, but makes you want to uh, dive some of those old canals and rivers when you see what they've, what they found in there. And this, I didn't realize it, but they drain this canal quite regularly. The last time they did it was in 2001. Yes. When I went over there last time I looked into, can I get a opportunity to dive them? And the answer was no. <laughs> and part of it was due to the traffic. Oh, the because, traffic. yeah. And the other part is because they can drain many of the sections of it. Uh, there wasn't a need to. But let me tell you, you go around Notre Dame and, and you start looking at the waterways, man. I want to look for bottles there. <laughs> well, these one, guys are not mucking the bottom. These guys are taking the surface stuff as the oh, pictures. Yeah, yeah. Because what they're doing, uh, and we're, we're not going to read the article, but it will be in the show notes. Uh, oh, now my browser's hung up. Uh, but we'll have one, one, yeah, it's Flash. Flash needs to be banned from the internet. Uh, but they're showing one, it's an antique camera, and right next to it is a bottle. Now they yeah. say, they say they drain this every so many years, and it was done in 2001, and had been done previously in the 80s, and, but I'm, they must not be going through and getting everything. They must just be, like, cherry picking some of the obvious stuff, because if they did, I don't think you would have some, some of these collectible items like we're seeing in the photos. Well, and I'd, I'd be curious to know what kind of uh, shells those are on the bottom, if that's quagga, zebras, or what species they have there. Mm -hmm. That'd be interesting to know. Obviously, that camera has not been down there as long as the bottle. Yeah, they they they, they say they're discarded mussel shells, almost making you believe that people had discarded them. But I, I'm pretty sure at some point in time there must have been clams yeah. there, and it just uh, because we see those in our river too. Well, the key items you're going to find there is that motorbike. The yeah. bicycle and shopping carts, just what we find. Yeah. Bicycle, the, shopping carts, and the, the, the I still like that. Yeah, the, the, the joyride toys that people, when they get done with something they stole but don't want to keep, Yeah, they just conveniently drop it in. Yeah. And, and you're seeing a lot of that in there. There's one big boom box, too. Yeah. Uh, and they, they said that it was actually worse this time than they drained than the time before. But, yeah. yeah. They, I, I would go in a flash. <laughs> yes. In a flash. It'd be worth dropping in. Now, here's another item that would be interested in dropping in, and I think some of the Muddies have already commented saying they'd like to. And this is out of Traverse City, Michigan, and they said they're finding the remains of a 9,000-year-old Stonehenge at the bottom of the lake. They said the structure is in the bottom of Lake Michigan. And now, when they're saying Lake Michigan, it's water's connected. It's in the Grand Traverse Bay. It's, uh, they found it in about 2007. It's 40 feet below the surface. A, and then we have Mark Holly, a professor of underwater archaeology at Northwestern Michigan University College, found the site with his colleague Brian Abbott of after a voyage across the lake in a ship that contained sonar equipment, which is generally used to examine old shipwrecks. After several passes, they found Rosa stones that piqued their interest when they sent divers down to visit the site and obtain photographs. They were left somewhat discouraged. 
It was really spooky when we saw in the water the whole site is spooky in a way. When you're swimming through long lines of stone, the rest of the lake bed is featureless. It's just spooky. In order to satisfy Grant Hevers Bay, American Indian community whose interests are to minimize the number of visitors to the site and preserve the location of his research, Holly's kept the exact location secret. One of the objects from the site is a boulder which is believed to feature prehistoric carvings of a mastodon an animal believed to have gone extinct about 10,000 years ago. Researchers shown pictures of carvings were asked for more evidence before they could confirm that the markings were, in fact, ancient petroglyphs. The trouble is that boulders underwater and experts in petroglyphs aren't necessarily expert divers. Holly hopes the computer model of carvings in a Mastodon rock will help petroglyph experts determine whether the features somehow natural workings or whether they are workings of ancient humans. A skeptical Charles Cleland, retired curator of Great Lakes Archaeology and and ethnology at Michigan State University says the petroglyphs are rare in the upper Midwest but have been seen, although he's skeptical he does see value in the investigation. But I think it's certainly something that needs to be investigated, Cleveland said. It would be unthinkable to leave it alone and not to figure it out. Interestingly enough, the structure is authentic and might not be all that out of place. Other stone circles and other petroglyphs and sites have been located in the Great Lakes and ancient structures underneath large bodies of water generally are not unusual. There have been over a 100 cities at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea recorded alone. Uh, so this so this isn't in the bay. This is actually out in Lake Michigan then. Yeah, but this is uh, not unusual. There's a, a section out there in Lake Michigan that they found an underwater forest, basically the logs and everything that are left. And that's uh, uh, considerably considerably deeper than forty feet. Yes. And um, if you looked at the one that was at the uh, shipwreck festival in uh, Ann Arbor last year, they had that whole uh, sequence on the caribou mm-hmm. in the Upper Peninsula up there by uh, Lake Huron, and yes. they found the uh, where they had built a like a shelter to collect the, the, the caribou migrating. Oh, you're they, talking they about like the, by, like, the, by the guys. And that's yeah. 10,000 years old. Yes. So the water level has changed substantially. Right. And plus the natives who were there at the time who may have created this don't necessarily need to be the same, you know, native Americans that were here a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago. There's a yeah. long time period and populations move and change. Uh, so just because, some of the stuff they find doesn't have it doesn't mean others do. But it's it's worth studying. It'd be interesting. Uh, I'm looking in the diagram and they're all in line. Uh, you know, does it necessarily mean because something's lined up that it was man-made? If they were projecting off the bottom several feet, which that appeared to be, and they were representative of several ones of the same type of stone, mm-hmm. also several feet off the bottom, and you know as well as I do how flat it is out there. Right. It would be quite suspect. Yeah. That would be something that was not put out there by a human or alien. <laughs> Could be. I don't Could mean be. illegal. I'm not one from space. <laughs> right. Yeah, because when, when we've seen, when we're diving in Lake Michigan, it's like a desert. A lot of times it's just rippled, rippled bottoms in the sand. Right. So if anybody wants a good presentation, I have one. It's called Bumps on the Bottom. And, uh, It'll, it'll, it'll pique your curiosity. <laughs> now, I've wanted a 3D printer, uh, but this is a little interesting. The 3D printed underwater city plans to recycle rub- rubbish into sea scrapers. Sea scrapers? That's what they're calling it instead of skyscrapers, sea scrapers. Okay. Uh, Belgian architect Vincent, they were, uh, 
uh, another name, Calbeau, might be pretty close, developed plans for an underwater city built out of recycled rubbish. They said the building proposed extends a 1,000 meters down the depth of the sea and plans are made entirely with 3D-printed plastic waste materials. The proposed sea scrapers would be composed of a material by mixing algae and rubbish with 3D printers to create the extensive networks of city towers and complexes. Life would be sustainable with renewable energy sources. Food would come from farmed algae, plankton, and mollusks, with vegetable gardens and orchards grown above the water level. There's also a 500-meter dome. Uh, Marina is designed to provide access to the underwater environment. They said the underwater structures seem almost too good to be true, but technology is advancing so quickly that recycling rubbish to create new sustainable structures may ultimately be the way they continue forward. With ever-rising water levels, they said it's really the way of the future. He's built a number of other conceptual plans on his website, including a shopping mall built using circular economy and self-sufficient housing complexes. I have to say he's a nice artist. The pictorials are very, very nice. I like that first sentence. Entire structure seems too good to be true. Yeah. I have to agree with the aspect of, of technology changing so rapidly. But when you talk about a thousand meters, three thousand feet. You're really talking about some accommodations. I don't quite see that in the, in the near future. You're really talking about some pressures. And do we really need to have people living at a thousand meters deep? Well, population keeps going the way it is. You're run out of land mass. So I would have questions of what happens when you have a storm. I mean, do, how, how fast can these things move? Can they move out of the way? Do they just absorb it? But as an art project, it's very pretty. Yeah. And in a closer to now type of construction project, the DNREC sinks to Shearwaters aboom the Delaware's acclaimed reef system. The DNREC Division of Fish and Wildlife sank the former Army and Navy ship Shearwater into the Dell Jersey Land Reef on December 11th, the latest fish attracting habitat and underwater enhancement Delaware's artificial reef system. Shearwater was commissioned in 1944 as a coastal freighter in the Army, later converted to the Navy survey support ship. It is placed in 120 feet of water, about one and a half nautical miles from the centerpiece of the Dell Jersey Land Reef. The 568-foot ex-destroyer USS Arthur W. Radford, Shearwater one-third Radford's length but with a height from keel of 38 feet, ended her working life in 2012 as a Menhaden boat out of Reedville, Virginia, where she was last converted to the early 1970s to stay afloat. And they give the locations. Uh, but I remember, I remember when they sank the other one. So it's nice that they're continuing to put vessels down there. Mm-hmm. Delaware's artificial reef system includes, also includes 1,300 former New York City subway cars, tugboats, and smaller commercial fishing boats, decommissioned military vessels, and the ex-USS uh, Bradford, which we already talked about. They, they just said the 71-year-old vessel had undergone extensive environmental cleanup and preparation for sinking. This according to Jeff Tinsman, Delaware Reef Program Coordinator, including removal of interior paneling, insulation from the ship superstructure, emptying all fuel tanks, sanitation equipment and lines, and hydraulic fluids. The ship's sampling protocol, the results of testing reviewed by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency for PP, PCBs and found clean prior inspection demanded that Shearwater also meet U.S. Coast Guard standards for sinking as an artificial reef. All machinery, doors, hatches, and electrical navigation equipment were also removed from the ship in preparation of its arrival in the port of call in the fish habitat. 
Isn't it great that they do that for all the, the vessels that also accidentally sink? Yeah, sure they do. It is interesting to know that Delaware has 14 of those artificial reef sites in yeah, uh, Delaware Bay and coastal waters. It, it, it'd be nice to have somebody provide some solid examples of how, how what that does to the economy. Well, that's already been proven. That's a boon to both fishing and to diving. See, we need something here. I would like to have a uh, you know, 150-foot-long vessel sunk out off of St. Joe. Well, divers would come. I mean, we go up north. Right. Why? Because they got good wrecks below 80 to 90 to 100 feet plus. Yes. I mean, the Cedarville. Oh, yeah. How much money does pe- do people spend just to come dive the Cedarville? A lot. Oh. Yeah. I mean, just from the mud club. <laughs> <laughs> We contribute significantly to the economy up there. So, and it'd be even better for us because we don't have the ice for as long as they do. Uh, it would have to be put out a little bit deeper. Nice part about where it's at, you can get to it and back real quick. Yeah, but you could do it. I mean, the the the, the thing would just have to be finding the right spot. Right, right now, I think we'd have so many fishermen around it, they wouldn't want the divers there. Well, yeah, you'd have to specifically in whatever thing you do to mandate it to, to allow it. In fact, I would put dive moorings in immediately after sinking just to kind of reinforce that it's accessible for diving. Yeah. Uh, underwater X prize. Oh, this, we already, already covered this. Nope. This is different. This is, is this a different one? That's what I was going to ask. This is for a sub or not? Yeah. yeah this is, this is the this same is, one. Right. But. At least it's got different kind of pictures on it. Yeah, it's uh, this one. This one was out of the the Daily Mail, which is a UK publication, and they they tend to to they have a little bit different artwork. Uh, I like some of the supporting information they had. Uh, existing technologies cannot operate the large scales needed to cover the ocean floor unless it makes substantial compromises of mapping, resolution, power, and weight of the sensor. So they're talking about you know some of the incentives for offering the prizes just to advance the technology said uh, today's advanced autonomous technology require a vessel that can cost up to $60,000 per day and a capital investment of up to $1 million, which limits access to specific industries, which is true. Uh, most industries who are doing surveying, you have a, a large support vessel which has the associated crew with it, so you're spending a considerable amount of money. So if you have something that you can just throw in at shore, let it go, and retrieve it later on, it's uh, much less expensive. Said power, size, weight, and sensor payloads determines how long you can explore, and they talk about some other things as well. So yeah, we we already covered that. Uh, different perspective and a different slant, so it's worth looking at both of them. Yeah, yeah, a little, little bit different, a little bit different supporting information. And this next one, we'll call these photos of the week. Uh, this one was from BoardPanda.com. Magical underwater worlds of Albanian caves. And this is uh, a submission from, uh, oh, I'm not even going there with that name. There's too many accents above it. I couldn't even begin. Just say George. George. We'll call him PK. Uh, and it was pictures of, uh, of a friend of his, Irina S. from South Albania. And they're cave dumbers, cave, cave dumbers, cave divers who like to travel to rare and special places. And these photos are I mean, these are professional photos. I mean, the camera that they use to take these, plus the clarity of the water, 
Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I would dive there. Yeah, it's like diving in a work of art is what yeah, they're doing. Wouldn't be going as deep as these guys are, though. No, they're, they're, they're going, uh, they had a tunnel at 50 meters connecting two pits, but they're just, and, and I know he's, they've colorized the heck out of these to get the, the vibrant pictures. I like the one where it's got the pump. I like the one with the guy with the doubles and everybody else has got rebreathers. Yeah, a lot of side mounting going on. Well, that's going to be their back, back up in gases on their rebreathers because they're going deep. Yeah, there's one. There's that. Well, I see one guy who's not on a rebreather. Let's see. You said you said you saw somebody with doubles. Yeah, after your first shot. Oh yeah, he's not on a rebreather. I think that's the same guy later on down. Oh okay. Because I can see he's got a uh, like a Poseidon-ish style. I don't know over there in Albania what their equipment companies are if they're the same ones we've got. But oh, there's another. Yeah, and, and beautiful shots. Yeah, aren't they though? Uh, and then we did have somebody who left a message on Facebook wanting to know where the the uh, show notes were because they wanted to have that cave diving story. Uh, oh, from uh, a couple of weeks ago? Yeah. So I'm going to try and get show notes done. It, it won't be before Sunday where I can get to that, that episode, but I'll try and get that, that link posted. It's an older article, so it is a little tough to, to come across. And uh, since we're talking about cave diving, uh, we've got, I uh, remember Steve Lewis? Not exactly sure. Uh, Jim, Jim Schultz and I went diving with us, and he was the one who, who did rebreathers with us. So okay. we, went, we went over and did rebreathers. Gotcha. And, you know, one of the best things, of course, about diving is some of the talks afterwards. And he was talking about dive uh, project that he had done on Bell Island up in Canada. Which it's actually that's where Steve's from. He's he's up there in Canada, and uh, they're mapping out a mine. And he is there right now, along with Jill Heinerth and some other divers, and they're continuing to map it out. Plus, they're improving the site to make it a sport diving destination. So here, let me Mac. I'm gonna paste it. You can go look at his blog, which is uh, decodoppler.wordpress.com. And also, if you know about Jill Heinert's, uh blog, you can find information there. And I, I pasted it in the Skype for you so you okay. can see it. But he's he's talking about doing the diving. And I, and if you follow his link over to Jill's, they she actually goes into a little bit more details. So they, they said over the next several weeks and certainly during Expedition Week, February 13th through 20, he says, I'll try and keep you up to date on the progress. So they're, they're over there now. I've seen diving going on in January. So they, it's it's a long effort had been going out for a while but it's an extensive uh cave system it was a mine uh mm-hmm. that bell island had actually been uh, uh targeted by the germans in the war to try and impact the iron ore that was being mined from it so i just reminded that wasn't necessarily one of our articles oh uh, one of the items you might want to look at is the uh individuals using rebreathers on oak island looking for the treasure they put them down last week Oh, I, I watched the show this week. And so what Max referring to is the, uh, I think it's Discovery Channel or Science Channel. They've got the, what's the name of it? Oak Island Mysteries or the Mysteries of Oak Island. All right. They've been working this for years now. Oh, yeah. This has been, it's the, the, the thing with Oak Island is it's been a, it's been a thought to be a treasure location for 150 years. So you, You've constantly, for over this amount of time, had people digging and poking. 
Plus, they're trying to get investors. So I'm always skeptical of anything that's been found just because it's old doesn't mean it wasn't planted there by people a long time ago. I mean, to, to be the pessimist, you could sprinkle some, you know, go to an antique shop, buy some gold coins, sprinkle those all over the island, and just have people accidentally find them. And you have all sorts of fun. And I, I think once you watch the show and look at how many people have been looking for it, it's called Oak Island Money Pit. You know why they call it the Money Pit. Yes. And it ain't because of what they found. It's about what they spent. But it is interesting. Uh, the show's a little slow-paced because I think they're really trying to stretch. You know, they've got four weeks of content, and they try to stretch it out in the 10. But this episode they had on this week, they were putting uh, two divers in the water. And they were both rebreathers, you said? Yeah. The one had doubles on his back. Uh, and they've got to go through a 29-inch pipe, I believe. I know, though. I can't. I don't remember the young lady's name. Mm-hmm. But uh, the surface support? No, she was the first diver in the water. I thought it was a couple, and I can't think oh. of her name because I think you'd recognize it if I mentioned it, but I can't think of it. Oh, I I know you're talking about. Yeah, that's that's. Oh, I, I they because that's there's a different diver in there now. If you follow this week, that's that you're you're a few weeks behind. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, because they they had some divers in originally. They and they've had four or five sets of divers. In fact, yes, they have. One of the guys. <laughs> who built the tunnel originally was diving it and he wasn't really even a diver. Right. And that's why you know you look at him uh, I think it's Dan Blankenship and there's a guy who just won't stop and you know he did all sorts of crazy dives many times you know they they what they would do is they would sink a uh, pipe and then excavate it out with a bucket you know he would put himself down you know with a tank on his back and pull dirt out. Yeah. It, it's worth mo- just looking up Oak Island uh-huh. And, and reviewing it, it's sort of fun. Yeah. But you figure they've been collectively as a group or people since 1861 looking right. for treasure there. Now, because uh, in 1861, the island, it was called the Oak Island Association, mm-hmm. and they were looking for money back then. So it's quite interesting. Did you see the uh, episode where they had the ROV in the water? No. Oh, so they've, so after those two divers you're seeing, a few weeks later they did an ROV. And there actually is a cavern down there, but uh, they the I think the next week's episode is where they kind of show you what they find or don't find. So a little, little sidetrack there. Uh, next yeah. on, next on to some uh, potential equipment with uh, the consumer electronics show going on. Uh, we're seeing some stuff that might not necessarily be exclusively scuba diving related, but it's coming out. And then uh, uh, dive related companies are also posting stuff. So Aqualung has a PR press release they put out. And what they're announcing is that they have a a lineup of uh, dive instrumentation products. And looking through this, I couldn't tell, is this stuff new or old? So they're saying they got a dive computer, Premier i750T. Uh, they have a console. Uh, they have, yeah, um, another console. Transmitters, analog gauges. So I don't, you know, the, is this all new stuff? Can you tell me? I, I really do not know. I'm assuming that the couple of them are not, meaning they are new, like that 750 Tango. Yeah, yeah, because I'm I'm looking and I'm seeing that that maybe this is just a you know a refreshing of the line, you know, putting in some new model numbers and trying to make everything talk together. But I look at like some of the the console, the gate, you know, the analog gauge packages look like what we've seen. Compasses look like what we've seen. 
Uh, they show an iPhone, so we're left to assume that they're using mobile technology interface with some of this. They've got sending units for some of the dive computers and the watches. So it looks like a, a normal press release. I was looking at the uh, 750 Tango. That's quite interesting. There's a lot of it does take the sensors off your tank, mm-hmm. and then you've got a wrist mount. Yes. So I'm sure it does all the items, but it, it is quite interesting. But I'm old school. Yeah, they said uh, includes uh, OLED color screen, which is getting to be popular. Uh, Three-axis full-tilt compass, which if that is a compass that you can actually tilt and it still works at an angle, that's something. A lot of compasses you get a little bit of, if they're not perfectly horizontal, Yeah, they uh, tend to bind up. Uh, user-replaceable standard battery, which... <laughs> I wonder what they mean by standard battery. Uh, you know. Yeah, they get to a good underwater GPS that you can actually use. I'll be interested in that. No, they they don't see they don't talk anything about GPS, do they? No. Yeah, that's we've seen a few of the companies uh, that have had that out, but I'm still looking for somebody to send me one <laughs> so we can try it out. Well, I'm you know, still good with analog, so hey, give me a watch, my depth gauge, I can figure it out. Yeah. And I'm not too lazy to figure out and fill in a logbook if I wanted. I don't have to have the computer do it for me. No, but it's nice. But how many people who do grubbing and who do the most of the diving that are out there, how many people really utilize their equipment like that to the extent that it really is worthwhile for the difference in money? Not a lot. Oh, darn it. This this next article I, I missed again. Let me see. I'm going to try and find it. What the gloves? No, there's. Uh, oh, yeah. Let, let's 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 talk about the gloves. No, there's the the one following it. Uh, so let's do oh, the gloves. The glove one doesn't help you because it turns out and gives you back to the Delaware ship again. Oh, it's a, the cut and paste is killing me. It's like you cut and paste something and it doesn't save it. Uh, let's go to. Uh, and the same thing for the drone. Yeah, that was the one I was looking for because the drone was pretty cool. If you go to scoop it. So if you go S-C-O-O-P dot I-T forward slash M forward slash scuba obsessed, you'll get to our scuba page, which most of the articles, not all of them. Oh, darn it. Oh, why did that not work? Let me try it again. Oh, it's T, not M. Ugh. So if you go www.scoop.it forward slash T forward slash scuba obsessed, that brings you to our scoop it page. And that's, that's going to have some of these, but it, well, the one I'm looking at, Mac, is the underwater drones. So let's, let's go ahead and cover that. And what this did, and I watched the video, is that they took a drone like you've seen people fly around in the air and take photos with, and they doubled up the propellers. So you have one on the top side of the motor. You also have one on the bottom side of the motor. And what they're able to do with this drone is that they can land it on the water, let it sink, and then it turns to an underwater drone. And I thought that was just plain cool. Oh, I would like that one. Yeah, if you, if you, if you look, and I send, I think I sent you the link in uh, Skype. And that video shows it flying. Now, you know, this advantage is it is tethered, so you're not going to get, you know, a mile-up shot. Right. But uh, still amazing what it's able to do. And then here, let me give you this one on the haptic gloves. This one was reported by Discovery. 
on their website, discovery.com. And the haptic gloves let you feel distant objects underwater. New gloves created by PhD candidate uh, Asian Karo Kitchen and Takashi Ozu of Japan's Toshukbu University can now provide some answers. <laughs> Not too too often where I can slaughter three names in one sentence. Yeah. The glove Interact Tech, named after Japanese word for dolphin, translates sonic signals into haptic feedback to give wares locate help wares locate items below. The wares can feel what's below thanks to gloves pulsing jets of water without having to go down physically to touch the object. It uses a Max Botic ultrasonic range finding sonar points down from the wrist along with three small motors in our Arduino Pro Mini microcomputer. The motors placed in the index middle and ring finger, which water is pumped from the fingers, produce pressure <coughs> feedback. When the glove is in close proximity to underwater object, greater pressure is exerted onto the finger. The sensor can receive and send sonic signals from up to two feet underwater, but the researchers hope to extend the range in the future. Huh. So it's like you, so like in the river, you could go over the bottom, like almost like a sub-bottom profiler. Is that what it's getting at? It sounds that way, but it didn't say how much they cost. Well, yeah, it's a prototype. Yeah, this is some somebody doing it for their doctoral thesis, I'm thinking. Oh. Uh, but it doesn't, it, you know, and you think about it, it doesn't sound that difficult. Uh, I'm looking at some pictures of it, matter of fact. It looks like 3D it's, printed plastic parts. Yeah, I'm looking at that. Seems like a warm water item. Yeah, at least the way they have it. Yeah, I don't think you would want to in your drive suit be, in, be squirting cold lake water on your fingers. No. But you could make one up, uh, you know, kind of like a game controller for dry suits that could do the same thing. You just wouldn't be shooting water. Yeah. So it's just another way of feedback from sensors. Your sensor still has to read it, and you're probably going to get better results from a sub-bottom profiler or a side scan. Yeah. I think that Kickstarter program you got there is pretty interesting. The Suba Smart. Yeah. See, this is one I'm not sure about. And it's a Kickstarter project, and it's for Suba, the smart scuba diving system for all divers. And as every product is, it they claim it's by divers for divers. And what they do is it's, it's imagine your BC integrated in with a dive computer, and it handles all your buoyancy. So you do is you program in the computer the depth you want to go to, and it's like an elevator control. You know, it will evacuate air and then put air into it and monitor it. Plus, so say you want to be at 18 feet, it will, you know, if you go too deep, it will put air into your BC, and then as you start rising up, it will dump air out. It will adjust that automatically for you. <laughs> uh, as I call a lazy diver. <laughs> well, that's see, that's what I was wondering is it's, it just. Do you have to trim your buoyancy that often that you need an automatic feature? And for people, we were just talking about training earlier. I could have used it when I before I knew how to dive. That's when it makes sense. If I'm, if I was brand new diver and I didn't know anything about how to adjust, then yeah, it, it could be handy. And when it fails at 120 feet on that wreck. Oh, it's going to fail beautifully. (laughs) You're going to do this. You're going to be in trouble. Yeah. You need to, uh, so, and that's what I was wanting. That's, that's kind of my point when I, I looked at it. My first thing is, is this a benefit for diving or is this just a crutch to prevent people from really learning how to dive? And I can imagine the same discussion went on 
when it went from the horse collars to a full BCD. I bet there were people who were saying, oh, why do you need a BCD? That's just for wimps. Uh, I don't know if I've ever said that's for wimps, for that kind of aspect. Uh, because my first one was a Navy vest that was strictly oral and plate, period. And my horse collar was wonderful <laughs> compared to that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so that's, I was just wondering if this is a, and it's going to add a lot of money. They're looking for, let's see what the Kickstarter money they're looking for. You can do, you know, of course you can give the token pledges, which are 15, 20, 25, 60. And then $500 gets you to reserve a two-hour Suba orientation try and buy dive with Suba experienced diver. Join the community as a backer, receive regular updates. Uh, receive information on a local try and buy event. So that's not even getting it. So you have to get up to $1,300 to get a package. And what the package includes, uh, a pro Suba smart BC, including Suba computer and puck unit and sports diver software. And then it goes on from there as you get extra packages, multiple kits, special training. <laughs> I mean, it's it's an interesting idea, and technically it's possible. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I can see, in fact, you know, looking, you know, waterproofing the electronics aside, it wouldn't be too terribly difficult for somebody to come up and create this because it's all about having, you know, monitoring feedback and then, you know, either adding or dumping air. Uh, so what, so far they've got three backers, which puts them at just under $4,000 of the pledge of 50000 for the goal in 30 days. So if you search for S-U-B-A on Kickstarter, you'll be able to see the project. And I saw this. Let's see, what does it say when it was uh, posted? Well, a prototype was, gosh, like five years ago, I believe. Yeah. So they've been working on this for a little bit. Yeah. It's just I think it's hard to convince dive shops to have another piece of gear. Now, combine this with a rebreather and a dry suit in one integrated unit, then maybe, or kit, then you might have something. Because that's one thing I was surprised with rebreathers, you know, feeling like I understood buoyancy, was how much that changed my buoyancy. So if you started people right off on a rebreather with a with one of these and a dry suit, that t- might take some of the challenge out of that. I just look at it as another item to go fail because it's mechanical or electrical. Yeah, it can. Right. But I do like your other new item, the Nikon. Yeah. So with CES going on, I've noticed there are lots of new cameras coming out. And the big thing this year is virtual reality and 360 4K. And that's what this is. It's a Nikon Key Mission 360. It's a waterproof 4K action camera. And if you imagine a, like a puck, it's not that big. But there's a camera on the front side of it, a camera in the back side of it, and this camera is waterproof down to 100 feet, and it has software where it's able to stitch these two camera angles together to get a full 360. So you're going to get four, a 4K video, uh, 360 degrees all the way around, and it's going to be released this spring. No news on pricing yet, but I've seen there's there's two or three other companies offering the same type of camera, just not uh, waterproof. And those are running uh, $400 to $1,000. Interesting, isn't it? 
but this is what I've been trying to figure out how to make, and somebody's put it together in a package. And to 100 feet, it might not be good enough for all dives that we do, but it's going to hit 90% of them. Oh, yeah. And so I'm thinking this might be one I save up for and try and get. You know, just come up with a mount for it, you know, and figure out which is the best way to do it. But they show some of the video that what you're able to do is with the software, like say we were going to do a dive on a shipwreck, you you do it with a dive, and then with the playback software, you're able to, as the viewer, look around and see 360. So you combine this with a, a VR headset, like what Oculus Rift is coming out with, yeah. and now somebody who's not diving could see as if you're diving. There's a gazelle bounding through my hallway. Oh, <laughs> making a little bit of sound. Well, when the floor is thumping and you're going, did somebody fall down the stairs? Or I thought I'd check real quick. Be interesting to see what the low light visibility on that one also is. Yeah, I mean that would have that would have an effect on its use in water. And the only thing I see right now, you're going to have to mount it on top of your helmet that you're going to be diving with. So when you're looking, you're going to be looking down and behind in a circle. You know what I'm saying? What I think you're going to see is I would use some sort of selfie stick because they say it has like a tripod mount. Yeah. So what you're going to do is you're going to put it in a stick, and the stick's going to be six to eight feet in front of you. So as you're moving through the water, people would view, and the only time they would see you is if they looked back, and and then you'd appear almost like a, a dive buddy. And there may be a dead spot that you can run the, the stick or pole that uh, – is going to be edited out with a stitching software, so you might not even notice it. But I like the idea. It's it's what I've been looking for. And then I did find some. Uh, there's uh, UStream has a camera that I'm I'm thinking about using for doing some video podcasts, where it's a 4K camera, but you can have a video editor who can crop it down because you don't. Nobody wants to be watching us in 4K. I'm I'm pretty sure, at least me. Uh, they don't need that level resolution. So what you do is you can actually crop it on the image. So you've got this single camera focused on, say, like you had a panel of six or eight people, and then you can have a video editor in real time do multi-camera shots from a single camera. So that's something that we'll be taking a look at. Well, that does it for Scuba in the News. And uh, it's been a couple weeks since we've had the show, so I'm sure that everybody's gotten all sorts of diving in since we last met. Uh, we had the Mud Club's New Year's Eve dive. Yeah. How did that go? Uh, it went very well. We did have snow. Uh, we did not have ice on the river. The inland lakes in our vicinity do have ice. Uh, how thick it is, I do not know. We had a dive hopefully planned for this um, Saturday. I have not heard too many takers yet. So if we go out, it will probably be the river. We had, I think, seven in the, in the water. We had five divers, uh, one snorkeler, and one boarder, you know, where they get those paddleboard things. Uh-huh. So they put lights on that, and he was out there in our, in our area. <laughs> so we all got out and out and in by, uh, by, by midnight. But if we do the river again, as a lot of us are getting older, we were talking about building a platform because you freaking break your leg going over the rocks, getting out to the muck. Now, where did you do? Was this Whirlpool Basin? Yeah, we went down to Whirlpool Basin. Yeah, that that's a that that can be a little bit of a a tough mess. Plus, have they changed it any with the construction of the hotel there? For no, condos? It was down in that area where we're at, it was uh, the same as normal. 
What was quite interesting, though, is I had pre, pre-checked it the day before and then the, the day of. And uh, one, the, the river was flowing backwards. At the point, you know, how you go in and you get that one section, you go out that's on your right, and then you just go around the corner and you're in the river. Right. All right. Imagine that before you get there, the river is coming with such velocity, there's a whirlpool there. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Then go about 40 feet past that on a 45-degree angle. And there's another one there. So no. we made sure everybody knew where the not-so-good places to go were. And uh, everybody stayed pretty close to, I don't think, more than five or six feet deep. Uh, I stayed with Mike, the brand-new guy. He went wet, which is better than trying on a, a dry suit you hadn't tried before. Yeah, and, and you're, and you're those, not in water that those, long. Those young guys with one bad glove, he could still tolerate the cold. <laughs> uh, the boarder enjoyed that out of it, but again, he wasn't under the water that much, but he was in the water. Yeah. Uh, we had uh, our 14-year-old snorkeler. He was with us. He did good. So we had Mary Beth. Uh, Ken Reamer was out. Larry didn't go this year. He had a, a nasty cold. Jim didn't go. He had a nasty cold. Uh, so you're the last hardcore guy who's made every year then? Yeah, 40 years plus as far as we can determine. I know it's a solid 40 years, but I I can't find any other records in the, in the newspaper that shows more than 40 years in a row. But Larry's done, this would have been 39 for him, but he's done 38 of them. Yeah, nice. That's quite a milestone. Yeah, I was disappointed that we didn't have anything in the Aeropalladium. I don't know if we got anything from the Trib or the uh, Niles, uh, but I sent them a good picture of uh, Mary Beth, and I figured with the lead in that she was the president of the club, you know, right? divers. Yes. Uh, Might have got more coverage. Sarah was going to dive. She cut her finger before she came down, so mm. she was out. So we had a lot of tenders this year, which is... <laughs> well, that's, that's always good because it's... It's cold. Well, Jake brought his toy box, Ken, and Larry brought the big one. So we had plenty of warm places to go dress and undress. Let's see what other diving has been going on. And, and if you want to see photos that Max talking about, you go to mudclub.scubaobsessed.com, and you can see it's the January 1 post. And then we had the turkey Well, dive. I did update the, the, club, the club website, too. Yes, that's what I'm looking at as a club. Oh, okay. Yes. And Facebook. We always have something on Facebook for that. I saw you you sent out in the newsletter telling people if they want any ideas for the website, let us know. Yeah, trying to get some more feedback there. Yeah, because it's just kind of a holding design. I'd like to maybe not, you know, maybe have the same categories, but just uh, artistically update it a little bit because this is kind of intermediate design. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's... Let's see. Uh, also, the the show notes. I'm going to try and get that out. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get those done. I, I know I won't be all caught up, but I'll try and get this one and last one. Maybe I'll start current and work my way back again. It's starting to get a little bit colder weather, so things are slowing down. But we are getting into robotics season for my kids. Starts on Saturday. They're in the first robotics, so that will start taking up a bunch of time. Uh, let's see. What else do we have? Um, and you talked about dives for this weekend. Yeah. And now is the perfect time of the year if you've got equipment you need to get serviced to get it into your dive shop. If you're not going to do any ice diving, 
your dive shop would certainly love to see your business get things serviced so when it starts to warm up, you can get in the water right away. I've got a tank out for hydro. I need to, to call Jim and see how that's coming along. You got one of mine too, as I reckon. I do have one of yours. Yours is full. It's ready whenever you need it. I just probably should just drop it off. Yeah. But the only other items I can think of right off though is February 20. Mm-hmm. It's the Great Lakes Shipwreck Festival in Ann Arbor. Ah, yes. We're getting the show season. Right. February 26th through the 28th is our World Underwater in Chicago. Event Convention Center, Rosemont, Illinois. Yep. Then we have March 1819 is the annual Go Ships in Milwaukee. Sounds like there's a lot of interest that year in going to that one. I think Kevin is interested, but Kevin is in that vent now, and he may be going to go to the uh, rebreather, Dark side. <laughs> breather stuff there. there, well, the, there which the, uh, no Kids Not Married group. <laughs> <laughs> Who has discretionary income. Yes. Uh, then you got the Scuba Fest in Columbus, Ohio in March. I don't have a date for that. And we may be participating with the uh, Midway Baptist Church again for their sportsman ah. display. Do we have any other presentations lined up yet? Oh, how do you mean presentations? Well, anything at like the library or the fish no, clubs? I had one or... coming up uh, for next month, but uh, they had to reschedule, so I haven't got that yet. Uh, but it was going to be on Niles. They have an interest in the Niles River. Mm-hmm. So I was modifying something, and they wanted to see treasure. So we were going to spend an hour with them there. So in March, we have uh, Wolf's Marine Open House. Ah, yes. So those right off the bat. Yep. And then hopefully by March, we have this incredibly early spring thaw, and we're able to get out in Lake Michigan. Now, I was betting that we're going to have a lot of snow, and that still may happen. We had that little mini vortex there and we were starting to see we i think i had six inches yeah in about eight hours yeah i still blew my driveway twice and i've still got five inches of snow outside on the the grass so so we have this lots of moisture in the air lake michigan still has a lot of heat in it all it takes is a nice cold breeze for three or four days and we can have a couple feet of snow so wouldn't take much no so we're due and then our listeners in California, let us know how you're doing. It sounds like they're, they're finally getting on the other end of the rain thing for a while. There was one lake that in a week had gone that increased 26 feet in depth. Really? Yes. Yeah, it, it went from 144,000 acre feet of water to 268,000 acre feet of water. And I can't remember it right now. You could probably Google it and find out. And that was still 50% below the average for this time of the year but considering that how bad they had been it was uh they said the only time it had been this bad before was in the seventh when they had droughts in the late 70s but they showed a photo of uh, a boat dock and that somebody had mowed all the way around it so the dock is just sitting on land with grass growing so yeah they're getting some rain out there that el nina weather pattern mm-hmm. uh, some of the mountains were getting multiple feet of snow which is going to be good for them because then that will help in the spring thaw, get some water down. Absolutely. So it may not completely negate the drought, but it will get them at least, they'll they'll be even for the year, I'm guessing. Was there anything else you want to plug before we get going? No, sir. Those are the major items, uh, upcoming events that are local. Yeah. And uh, actually, I I don't have a joke this week because I'm on a different computer. I didn't pull any jokes over, so we'll have to do a two for next week. So it just, just seems kind of out of place. I, I don't know what we're, know what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So keep an eye on the website. We're still a little bit behind on that, but I'm going to get some stuff on it and got some new projects going. So I paid all the bills up for hosting and website, so they're stuck with us for another year. Anybody out there want to contribute to a better bandwidth or something, let us know. We'd be more than happy to yeah. uh, accommodate yeah. you there. Yeah, we'll have to do something. I'm still, that's one of my challenges. It'd be, it'd be a lot more that we'd be doing if I could address some of those issues, but I'm, I'm getting pretty close in the video. The thing with the video is you can't do video like how we do audio. Audio, I do a little bit of editing. So you know, sometimes for an hour of audio, I can, I can edit in 30 minutes, but video is exponentially the other way. I mean, for an hour of video, you could be six, eight hours of editing. So it's going to be like live to tape video. Uh, but it, it means that I need to have one or two people who are not on air that are just doing editing support to do that sort of program. So that's where it comes into challenges. Just the, the additional number of people who have to be willing to volunteer to help put it on. Or we get, you know, some big pocket sponsor who wants to put some money in for it. So we'll, we'll, we'll do a few video. Plus I'm, I'm thinking on some of the video ones that we'll do them on topic. So it'll be more of a reference. Okay. So. On that note, and until next week, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. 